So welcome along to our sermon expanded on the 4th of March, Sunday the 4th of March, where we continue through the book of Luke. We were looking at chapter 15 on Sunday, which is the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. We didn't actually go into the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son, which is the more famous of the three. We left it and I've left that probably for another time. But we look specifically at the first two, the lost sheep and the lost coin. I'm going to read it to you. We read from the NIV last week. I'm going to read from the ESV. We were talking about interpretations and translations of the Bible last week. And so if you didn't get a chance to listen to that, go back at NHG and have a listen to that. And you'll hear a little bit about the differences between them, the the ways that they were written and the, the reasons why. I'm going to read from the ESV, the English Standard Version, and then I'm also going to read from the Message Version by Eugene Peterson. So I'm going to first read from the ESV where it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbours, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbours, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then in the Message Bible, we again start. By this time, a lot of men and women of doubtful reputation were hanging around Jesus, listening intently. The Pharisees and religious scholars were not pleased, not pleased at all. They growled, he takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. Their grumbling triggered this story. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and lost one. Wouldn't you leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the lost one until you found it? When found, you can be sure you would put it across your shoulders rejoicing, and when you got home, call in your friends and neighbours, saying, Celebrate with me, I found my lost sheep. Count on it, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner's rescued life than over ninety-nine good people in no need of rescue. Or imagine a woman who has ten coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and scar the house, looking in every nook and cranny until she finds it? And when she finds it, you can be sure she'll call her friends and neighbours, saying, Celebrate with me, I found my lost coin. Count on it. That's the kind of party God's angels throw every time one lost soul turns to God. Now, even as we read through those, there are some elements of what we were talking about last week in terms of translation and the ideas behind them. In my ESV Bible, where it talks about the parable of the lost coin, uh, that woman having ten silver coins, and there's a little footnote to that, which says, Greek ten drachmas, a drachma was a Greek coin, approximately equal in value to a Roman denarius, worth about a day's wage for a labourer. So that person is helping us to translate this, is helping us to assume that this coin is about wage. It's about a woman who loses a tenth of her earnings, essentially. And so, of course, if anyone loses a tenth of their earnings, it's quite a big deal. When we look at coins now and the idea of a coin, a silver coin, to us it doesn't mean much. It's a 20p or 10p or 50p. And so we don't think much of that. 
but this was the equivalent they're saying of a tenth of a, a, a labor a tenth of a pay a tenth of a wage packet it reckons it's about a day's wage for labor so they get paid maybe every 10 days and this woman has lost this coin to a tenth of her earnings of course things were tight of course things were expensive then as they often are now so losing a huge chunk of your income is a massive thing but in other interpretations uh, Eugene Peterson and his when he recalls this doesn't really mention that there are no footnotes there are no um, approximates there are no little uh, footnotes to suggest anything for us it's merely an, a translation and he simply says 10 coins and loses one won't she light a lamp and scar the house she doesn't mention anything else but it's interesting the ESV in that translation makes us look towards this idea of wages. Barclay, on another hand, who writes a commentary on this, yes, he does say that it's about... Well, he gives us two reasons, two options. It may have been a matter of a day's wages for a working man in Palestine. They always lived on the edge of things and very little stood between them and real hunger and starvation. The woman may well have searched with intensity because if she did not find, the family would not eat because of this day's wage. So that matches up with our, our translation in the ESV. But, he says, there may be a much more romantic reason than that. In Palestine, the mark of a married woman was a headdress made of ten silver coins linked together by a silver chain. For years, maybe a girl would scrape and save to amass her ten coins for the headdress. And that was almost the equivalent of her wedding ring. When she had it, it was so inalienably hers that it could not even be taken from her for debt. It may well be that it was one of these coins that the woman in the parable lost, and she searched for it as any woman would search, as if she had lost her wedding ring. So there's something in the translation, and this tells us a little bit of the interpretation of this woman and the coin, but I thought it was good to draw that up because it fits in so well with last week. And so there is rejoicing when she finds it, whether it's a day's wage or whether it's this idea of a part of her wedding garb, her wedding headdress, her that was so inalienably hers it could not be taken for debt. So it's something very precious, in effect, is part of her. And of course, when she loses part of it, she feels that she has to has lost something and has to scar and, and search. And when she finds it, she rejoices because it is a massive thing. In the parable of the lost sheep, Israel at this time would have been full of rocks and cravines. It would have been full of wilderness. There were large areas, and that's essentially where the sheep were driven off into to um, to feed them, to herd the flock around these places, trying to look for all kinds of food and shelter and water for the sheep to help them grow so they could be eaten, essentially. And so when this shepherd who loses one goes off and finds this wouldn't have been a a weird picture for the people who were hearing this parable for Jesus. This would have been something that was quite normal and natural and they would have seen a lot of. Interestingly, it ties in. There's a book I read about living the year, living the Bible in a year, living a year biblically in the Bible. Um, it's by A.J. Jacobs. It's a, you know, his take on he's a Jew and he wants to live biblically in modern times and so goes out to Israel and looks at the shepherds and one of the things he sees is that the shepherds go out and still do this in modern day Israel and Palestine and they still tend their flocks of sheep out in the wilderness and one of the things that they do and become very good at they don't have sheep dogs or anything like that but they become very good with a sling and a stone which is what we know from the Old Testament and who David was and why he became so um, 
skilled at that and why he then defeated Goliath. So just a little side note that they were natural skills. So the shepherd goes out and tends his sheep and looks after them. And if one was lost, doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost? Of course he does, because that's what he was supposed to do. He was to tend, he was to look after, he was to care for these sheep. Again, we go into Berkeley, and Berkeley suggests that there is something bigger going on than simply that. He's suggesting that it's not the idea that this shepherd owned these sheep. They were experts at tracking. They could follow the straying sheep's footprints from miles across the hill. There was not a shepherd for whom it was not all in the day's work to lay down his life for his sheep. But many of the flocks were communal flocks, belonging not to individuals but to villages. There would be two or three shepherds in charge. Those whose flocks were safe would carry, arrive home in time, and they would bring news that one shepherd was still out in the mountainside searching for a sheep that was lost. The whole village then, because it was their sheep, would be upon the watch, and then when in the distance they saw the shepherd striding home with the sheep across his shoulders, there would rise from the whole community a shout of joy and thanksgiving. That's the tri- that's the picture Jesus, Barclay says, is trying to produce in us and his listeners. This idea that there is something communal about this. It's not just somebody who owns something and loses it. It's the sheep from the communal ship flock. It is the, the coin from the sense of identity in this woman in the, in the community. And the community wouldn't want to see her without her proper headdress because it was part of her. And so there's an idea that there's a communal sense to all these things. And so in both of them they finish with rejoice with me or celebrate for I have found the lost sheep. I have found the lost coin and there will be much joy in heaven with the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There will be much joy over each of us. There will be much joy as there was in those days. As there was in these parables about the lost things that were found. But it goes deeper again than that. It's not just a parable about losing things. It's not just a parable about maybe trying to find things. It's not just something saying, oh, you know, we should be careful today about the things that we have or the things that we do. It's something much deeper than that. Again, this is using Barclay. The Jews said there is much joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated before God. They loved sadist- They looked sadistically forward to not the saving, but the destruction of the sinner. And this is all down to their purity. This is all down to them being the chosen ones. This is about them, as happened in the Old Testament, God telling them to wipe out those who were not as them. And so they have a, an idea of they are the chosen people. They must keep themselves pure. And if we go through the, the Bible in a year, which is on a podcast, and you can do that, you'll see this often. It was in their national identity that they were greater than, they were the chosen ones. And this is part of their problem as well, because time and time again, we see in the Bible as a whole, this idea that because they believe they are the chosen ones, there's a sense where they slip and fall into disobedience because they don't have to do anything or they don't feel they have to do anything. So the Jews said that there's joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated because they weren't them. They weren't the chosen ones. They deserved to get it. They weren't pure enough. They weren't doing the right things. They might have actually even been the people who were spoiling or tainting their national purity and identity. And so there was much joy over that. The rabbis agreed that God would welcome the penitent sinner. But in this story, it's not about a penitent sheep or a penitent coin. They're objects. It's not about 
the penitent sinner coming to God is the idea that Jesus is trying to say about God being a seeking God, a God who takes the initiative. And of course then, he shows this physically. At the start it says the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him because they loved this message. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. If we go back into book that i've mentioned uh, a meal with jesus by tim chester talks about this this idea that the pharisees yes they believed in a feast yes they believed all that jesus was saying in terms of the kingdom of god their objection wasn't the fact their problem wasn't the fact that it was going to be a party that it was going to be a feast it wasn't going to be a celebration it was the fact of who was getting invited their objection was to the guest list in their days, what they eat, who they ate with, who they were around the table with, who they dined with and conversed with, it wasn't so much about the table, it was about what that symbolised. The ceremony of the table, who you shared with, it was a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy and unity. There's an anthropologist, Mary Douglas, who suggests that in the cultural meals, they represent boundary markers between different levels of intimacy and acceptance. Policing the human body, she says, was a way of policing the social body, the communal body, by maintaining a common identity. Jewish food laws, which the Pharisees and scribes would have obeyed, not only symbolised cultural boundaries, they also created them. So a central question in the Judaism of Jesus' day was, with whom can I eat? In this parable, this is what we find. The tax collectors and sinners drawing near and the Pharisees and scribes grumbling, saying, this man receives, sits, eats with sinners, people who aren't like us, people who aren't pure, people who haven't done the right things. And Jesus turns that on its head and says, well, actually, these are the people that God is seeking. These are the people who God wants to bring to the table. These are the people who he invites to dine with him and celebrate him and with joyce with him and that's why then he says i tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over you 99 righteous who need no repentance or just so i tell you there is joy before the angels of god over one sinner who repents one sinner one outsider one of them and so jesus is talking to these scribes and pharisees saying it's about them, they're being drawn into the table because God is inviting them to be part of the table. Sunday past, we had communion. And so my point, uh, my idea was very clear. We get invited to the Lord's table, communion, Eucharist, Holy Communion, whatever way you want to call it. We get invited to it because God is a God who seeks we don't draw to it because we're good enough. We don't draw to it because we've done the right things. We don't draw to it because we have, wear the right clothes or attend church a certain number of times. We don't even deserve the sacrifice that Jesus gave upon the cross. But God seeks us out. God is the God of invitation. God is the God who takes the initiative. And the initiative is exactly that. Jesus upon the cross. In Romans, Paul says, while we were still sinners, while we were still weak, while we were still unable to do it for ourselves, at the right time Christ died for us, 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for a good person one would dare to die, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is communion. That is what we celebrate. We are brought into the feast by invitation, by God seeking us, by God coming to us in the person of Jesus. We don't do it on our own merits. We don't come to that celebration because we deserve it, but we are invited, we are sought, we are rejoiced over because we are part of the heavenly feast that we remember at communion. Maybe sometime we'll do a specific one on communion. We might come across that in the next coming weeks or months, um, but hopefully you have found a sense of value. Hopefully you have found in this a sense of your own worth. Hopefully you have found a sense of comfort knowing that God comes for you to seek you. God is taking the initiative. He's not a God that has to wait to be asked. He's not a God who has to be told. We seek him in prayer. We go to him in prayer. But he is a God of the initiative. He goes before you. He goes with you. And he goes beyond you. And so, in light of that, grace and peace, my brothers and sisters.